All right, all right, all right. Let's get fired up here. Maximum freedom. Read. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the next episode of the Actual Anarchy Podcast, the podcast where we talk about movies from a Rothbardian and anarcho-capitalist perspective. My name is Daniel, my co-host is Robert, and we run ActualAnarchy.com and ReadRothbard.com. And today, Easter Sunday, we have a very special episode with some guests, and we're going to talk about... Are you going to call Robert? Uh, I don't know, I called you. We're doing this phone call thing that we record, and we call it a podcast. Uh, this is exciting because this is our first, first four-person podcast. Uh, we went from doing a two-man podcast for almost a year, and then it was like, should we have guests? I don't know. Yeah, eh, who knows? And now we've got two guests, so we'll see how this is going to work. I think it's going to work out well because it's a husband and wife combo duo team. And uh, yeah, we're going to talk about Ghostbusters, Daniel. Yeah, both the old and the new, so the 1984 and the on-its-face SJW version. And to your point, I think it's appropriate that we do our first four-person podcast for Ghostbusters because there's four of the Ghostbusters, so it's great. Indeed. So, so let's bring on our guests. We've got Lewis and Julie from libertopiacartoon.wordpress.com. They are amazing artists and make some pro-liberty, pro-anarchy information and cartoons at their website, Libertopian Cartoon or LibertopiaCartoon.wordpress.com. How are you how are you guys doing? Hey guys, great to be here. We're ready to rock and roll and bust some ghosts. <laughs> <laughs> Hi. Hey. This is this is Julie. Hi, yeah, and I'm Lewis. Uh should I introduce myself, but So Lewis, are you the who who's the artist and who's the writer? Or are you guys it's like a combo deal? Uh, we're a team. Uh, Julie does a lot of the, or she does some of the writing, and then I do a lot of the artwork. Uh, she gives a lot of input uh, on on different ideas that I might have, and then if, of course, if if she, I'll run things by her and say, "Hey, you think this would work?" or or uh, "What about this? Is this funny?" and and so we we definitely work together on on Libertopia for sure. But uh, we're always just trying to figure out ideas, uh, a kind of a way to market. The message of libertarianism, anarcho-capitalism, volunteerism, you know, uh, find ways that it's going to be appealing to just regular blue collar type folks, uh, even kids. You know, we want we want this stuff to be to be interesting to to a wide variety of audiences. So so that's kind of what we're, we're aiming for for Libertopia. Well, very he's a little, cool. he's uh, a little too modest because he's the one who does all the artwork. He does all of it. Does the, he does all the artwork, and I'm basically okay. just the one who tells him what to do. <laughs> <laughs> so this isn't like a chasing Amy situation where one of you draws it in pencil and the other one inks it, so they're a tracer. No, <laughs> no, he does it all. He's the artist, and I'm the one who sometimes will come up with an idea and I'll say, "Hey, I think this would work really well in a cartoon or a graphic," 
and then he puts it together. Very cool. And it looks like you've got some archetypal characters in your cartoons. I got to admit, this is the first time I've checked it out, but it looks very cool. I really dig your your design here on your website, and your cartoons look really colorful and cool. I haven't seen any of them yet, but you look like you got a get a hedgehog, and that's that's you, Lewis. Well, that's the porcupine. Yeah, the 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 typical oh, libertarian yeah. porcupine. So so yeah, that's Lewis. And then there's um, Paul Bot, which. We thought we'd kind of turn into a joke because back, if you remember back when Ron Paul was, was running, uh, a lot of the people that supported Ron Paul, they were, they were called Paul bots. So, so we thought, Hey, we'll just run with that and make a, a robot character. And then we've got, um, uh, we've got a couple of adversarial characters like, uh, we've got, um, oh, I'm drawing a blank Frank. now. <laughs> yeah. Frank, the, Frank the donkey. Yeah. Frank the donkey. A, you know, heart, big government t-shirt and then abe the elephant who carries a gun and has a flag u.s flag on his shirt he's very pro-war yeah so like got one from the left and one from the right so and then we have zombie zombie who comes in every so often and that we kind of took off of tom woods and bob murphy's interview with the zombie where the zombie could really only say one word and it was usually something really stupid <laughs> and zombie is the it represents the media in in uh the adversarial media in our little world very nice and who is the uh the the cute little penguin here that's, oh, that's julie. julie yeah that's, that's, julie. that's me okay very nice well i i hope everybody goes and checks out libertopiacartoon.wordpress.com very excellent but i, I i'm curious because it's always nice to meet a husband and wife team and they happen to both be into freedom so if you guys could just break down, was it Lewis who was into it first or Julie or were you guys both together? Or is this like a journey you went on together or you guys just been into it your whole lives? I'm, I'm really curious. I, I would say it's probably a journey that we went on together. I mean, I've always been the one that um, listens to podcasts and, and reads things. And, you know, I kind of encountered some ideas that were different and presented them to Lewis. And he thought it was kind of curious, and so he would do his research on it. But it wasn't really until, I think, Ron Paul's campaign, the most recent one in 2012, when we were introduced to Ron Paul, and then it just kind of snowballed from there. (laughs) And we went to um, a Ron Paul rally that was in Union Station, where we live. He showed up at the last minute. Nobody knew he was coming, and there were like, 2,000 people that showed up on the spur of the moment to see Ron Paul. And that was when we saw, like, this is a big deal. There were so many people there, young people who were super excited about this, you know, elderly Republican presidential candidate. And it was kind of an amazing thing just to see how many people, people from all stripes that he brought together under this banner of liberty and freedom. And we just, we had to know more about that. So that's kind of where it started. Very cool. And before that, would you say you leaned one way or another, or are you more kind of apolitical? Or I would say, personally, that I've kind of been on, on this journey. Like Julie said, it, it snowballed in uh, 2012, but I've kind of always been on this journey of of being very thoughtful about the world and culture and society. Um, I've 
been really interested in just studying that and learning all I can. I really enjoy history uh, too. And so that's, that's something that contributed as well for sure. But, uh, I would, I would say that, uh, personally, I, I probably, I grew up in a more conservative household and, uh, very pro Republican and, um, but still very pro community. And, you know, we lived out in the country. So, uh, you know, I guess there could be something said about the whole urban rural divide too. Uh, in in that, but uh, but as time has went on, I've pulled away more from that that uh, not the community aspects and and but more just that statist uh, mindset of we need this government to solve everything, and instead we I'm thinking more now that we we can rely on ourselves as individuals or people within our community uh, to to uh, figure things out. So, of course, the capitalist perspective and and uh, just the more freedom you have, I I believe comes from less government. So, uh, it's not anything that government's ever going to produce or contribute. Uh, it's going to definitely come from people wanting that and desiring that so right yeah if you're looking for politicians to grant you your freedom you're you're barking up the wrong tree definitely all they can do is take it away and that's a position that i mean we we were kind of there at first the kind of the more neoconservative whatever where we thought Mm -hmm. that the solution was we just got to get the right guy in office right and you know eventually we came to to see that that is so far removed from how you would actually acquire liberty. Right. Yeah. That's Good word choice. Given, it's always <laughs> the given, the given the actual, solution, right? Get the actual, the right person in when it's, when the real answer is that nobody, yeah. nobody has the. And then none of them are really fit to be there at all, sure. especially the people who would seek it out. Right. Yeah. This last election cycle, we, we were given two terrible choices. And one of them won, of course. Um, <laughs> I, I thought that, you know, between the two, the, the more entertaining one won. Oh, absolutely. Sure. I, I, was, I was very entertained, I will say, by the last election. More so than I've ever been before. Just because I felt like I was finally at the point where I was kind of an outsider who was watching it from afar. And I didn't really have a horse in the race. And so I could just appreciate it for its pure entertainment value. And it yeah. was very entertaining. <laughs> Political theater. What it is, it's a dog and pony show. <laughs> so Does let's we- uh, talk about a little bit this movie we're supposed to be talking about. And we can uh, diverge and go off on tangents. It's what we do. But uh, we thought we would talk about the original 1984 Ghostbusters and then the 2016 uh, reboot. And it's interesting to look between those two movies, and uh, I was struck immediately in the first one by how pro pro capitalist it is. Oh, very absolutely. Much, uh, very much these a group of guys who have an idea and they want to provide a service to the city of New York and all those citizens, and they run into they just you know they they develop this technology, they develop this containment system. And they go out and they service clients. And 
the government gets in the way. <laughs> the EPA comes in and they want to like make sure everything is right and you have to analyze everything and very much uh, uh, a private property versus a government intervention type of an argument gets made. And uh, in the 2016 one, that's all, I didn't see any of that. It was uh, all absent. They didn't have anything like that in there. Yeah, even though it's pretty much the same thing is happening. But all that, uh, like, uh, capitalist undertones are, have all been stripped away, it seemed. Yeah, not only that, Robert, but in the original one, they're all university professors initially. And uh, they get kicked out of, of doing that because the administration doesn't like uh, the Bill Murray character. And so when he tries to convince the other guys that they should go out and do it in an entrepreneurial way, he's like, yeah, we're just wasting our time at the university. You know, let's go out there and actually do something. Right. And then the quote, I believe it's from um, uh, the uh, Dan Afrid character. Was it Stance? I've He's been like, in the private per- sector. They expect yeah. results. <laughs> yeah. Personally, I like the university. They give us money and facilities, and we don't have to do anything. You've never been out of college. You don't know what it's like out there. I've worked in the private sector. They expect results, <laughs> yeah. which is just shows you the public versus private sector. The public sector, you can just skate away and provide a terrible service and uh, never really suffer any consequences. And I was never really sure exactly what they were doing in the university other right, than uh, torturing with students with their <laughs> phony experiments. I mean, yeah, Vakeman was using it as a way to make women uh-huh. for, for shock therapy, basically. <laughs> Which so. is probably why, you know, the message was written on the door. This is the first thing you see, the message about Vankman, Vankman burning hell. <laughs> <laughs> and then later he says, but the students love us. Right. So um, so the gang goes into business, and Ray ends up taking out a third mortgage on his house. So they're taking a big risk to start this business. Um, the first real scene I guys want to really want to get into is the gang going to the hotel where they meet Slimer, and they're running through the hotel, and they're called to go trap this ghost. They've got this ghost in this hotel, so they call the Ghostbusters, and they go there, and they end up destroying a great deal of this like ballroom where uh, the manager, the hotel manager is like really worried and he wants to go in there and they're like, no, there's all this noise happening. And then they come out with this ghost. And at this point, the hotel manager, they say, you know, the price is like $5,000. This is our cost of what we did. And the hotel manager says, no, I'm not going to pay that. That's crazy. And then the Ghostbusters threatened to release the ghost back. Did anybody have an issue with this scene? This is a, I thought all of this would have been solved with like a, a contract previously, better understanding of what they do. But I guess they're a news service and they don't really have an established, uh, you know, um, the protocols. And their rates aren't, aren't established. Like no one really knows what they would charge normally. Well, we talked about that, uh, Julie and I, and and because uh, we thought it was a fun scene and an interesting scene too for for kind of some of the undertones. But we we thought that even though they didn't have a contract, it was still a verbal contract where where the hotel manager understood that when he invited them in, that they might do things their own way in order to solve his problem or solve the hotel's problem. So. There seemed to be some sort of understanding there that 
or that he would assume some kind of risk uh, by inviting them in onto the premises. So that's that's what we interpreted from the scene. Especially since it was, you know, a new service. And, yeah. you know, he was taking a risk by calling them, but he had a really, really big emergency that he needed to have taken care of. So he really, right. you know, he would have had to have waited out like, well, they might destroy some stuff, but it's worth it to me to get rid of this ghost. Well, right. that's you know, true. Kinda... Yeah, that's <laughs> true. I mean, there's no guarantee that if they, if he hadn't got rid of, rid of that ghost, that that ghost would have created an even bigger problem than the Ghostbusters created getting rid of the ghost, you know, because they, they tore up some stuff for sure. And it looked like there was a fancy dinner party going on and, or that they were getting ready for. And, and you could you could step back from that and say, well, the Ghostbusters caused some problems, but if they hadn't gotten rid of that ghost, who knows what would have happened? You know, maybe the ghost would have went on and and uh, created an even bigger problem with the rest of the guests that were staying at the hotel. So and then they could have had a reputation for, you know, and they wouldn't have been able to get customers anymore because there's this ghost that's bothering everybody. You know, it's it was just it was a risk on his part, definitely. Right, unless unless they were going to change their advertising to advertising that they have a ghost, and this is like now a haunted hotel, and yeah. certain people, <laughs> a certain different type of clientele would want to come there, right? Yeah. Probably not the high end that they were used to. <laughs> Probably not. Good point. Excellent point. Yeah, yeah so, so Daniel, I, did you... Go ahead. Yeah, I did have a problem with, with how he presented the price, though, because it seemed as if uh, the job was already done and there was no mention of what the rate might be. And so it's Venkman, right? He just basically throws a number out there, just makes it yeah. up. And it, it seems a little shady to me to, it's like, it's like getting your car worked on and, and, you know, you think it's going to be a couple hundred bucks and they come back, oh, $5,000. Like, what? Do you I think suspect, that the, the hotel not. manager has some sort of obligation to find out the, the cost or the, the proposed or supposed price beforehand? It seems like I, he does. It seems like he probably should have just figured that out first. Yeah, like when, once they come in the door, wouldn't you say, you know, what are your rates? What? How much is this going to cost me? <laughs> yeah, isn't that the yeah. first thing you do when you when you look for a new service to provide anybody? Uh, seems to me like you would. Now, of course, he but, is an early early adopter of said service. Like this doesn't exist until you know until these guys start doing it, right? So it, there's there's no established market for this. But yeah, I think that he should have at least been like, hey, what's this roughly going to cost me? Because Venkman took advantage of the situation, I think, in saying, well, we got this thing. We know that if, if we let it back out, you're going to lose all this revenue from uh, people aren't going to want to stay here unless, of course, you start marketing, like you said, as a ghost haunted hotel. Uh, so he knows that it's going to cost them much more uh, in lost revenue if they release this ghost back into the into the hotel, right? So he's almost right, ransoming have- him. It, it did seem like he was kind of blackmailing him in some respect. Like he just kind of threw out a number to see if it would work. You know, like, hey, I'll throw this number out and see if he's willing to pay it. Right. Yeah, and there was uh, a scene later, like the montage, you know, every 80s movies. Every 80s movie has a montage <laughs> where he says, oh, yeah. you know, he's like being interviewed and he goes, no job is too big. No fee is too big. <laughs> <laughs> that was classic Bankman. He was he was the quintessential entrepreneur of that movie. <laughs> well, and these guys they can essentially charge whatever they want, right? I mean, they really could. Extent, 
because they're the only service provider and they essentially have a monopoly, an early type of monopoly, not due to forcing out competition, but due to being the only ones that have this technology to perform the service. Yeah, they were on the bleeding edge, so they could sort of charge monopoly prices, but they also couldn't prevent anyone else from doing what they were doing. So someone else could have figured it out and come along and competed with them, thus driving the price down, improving the quality of the service, et cetera. Yeah, now, um, in the first movie, uh, they're called proton packs, these things that they carry around. And in the second movie, I think they're called, like, nuclear reactors of some kind. Does it, did, did any of you have an issue with the safety concerns, with them just kind of running around with these nuclear reactors running on their backs? He pointed that out in the, in the 1984 movie. He's like, well, these are unlicensed proton packs or unlicensed nuclear accelerators. <laughs> yeah, that's the so, oh, okay. Um, but, uh, I didn't really have a problem with it. I just, I thought that they were experienced people. They, they seemed like they knew what they were doing other than in the first scene where they almost killed the, the maid, you know, <laughs> but, um, uh, they, they did seem like they, because they were, they had built the equipment that they didn't know a little bit about how it worked. And, and, um, so what, what did you think, Julie? Oh, I didn't, I didn't really think that it was a big risk. I mean, cause I assumed that because these guys had built a technology that they understood how it worked and that if it had been risky, they probably would not have been running around with them on their backs. So, right. They're essentially taking this massive risk themselves. Yeah. They had, I mean, would have already have had to have had some reasonable assurance that they were safe in order to be willing to run around with them in such close proximity to their own bodies. Even though they didn't, it, it seemed like they were very much learning and training on the job because yeah. in the very first scene, they were like, don't cross the streams. It's like, that seems like a thing you would have talked about beforehand. <laughs> He's just like, oh, yeah, I forgot this really, really super important thing. Right. Yeah, Robert, this reminds me of that uh, when we did Logan, when the Patrick Stewart character, uh, Professor X, you know, he's got these... Um, brain aneurysms or brain like he goes into these shocks that could destroy a whole city and so it's sort of similar in that you know if these proton packs nuclear reactors on their backs uh, were to malfunction it would put a significant area around them at risk indeed so how do you feel about that daniel do you think they're being irresponsible then uh perhaps a bit yeah i mean not that i think it justifies a government intervention, but I think that uh, uh, it is a risk that, that they're sort of putting into other other people's laps without their consent, you know, like, mm-hmm. sure, the hotelier, like, invited them in, but how much range would a malfunction affect, you know, and, and did the thousands of people within that range sign on for that? I don't think they did. Right. I'm sure they, they accept some risk by being anywhere but they don't necessarily accept the risk of being caught in a nuclear blast because you needed to sleep for a night at this hotel or live in this New York City, right? Uh, you think, do you think they have some sort of an obligation in their advertising to advertise this idea, this, this fact? I would well, I suspect think, that they would. Yeah, I mean, they, they, they would certainly incur a liability mm-hmm. if a malfunction occurred, but, you know, once everyone's been... Uh, nuclearly uh, 
melted into shadows, I don't know if there's much restitution that can happen. Right, especially since the, the perpetrators would also be melted. Yeah, so that's kind of an interesting uh, thing to think about. I mean, it is a movie, and it's meant to be playful and fun, so they probably didn't really dive into this level of <laughs> morality. You're not supposed to think about that too hard. <laughs> right. Now, how about this? This might be kind of a silly topic of discussion, but I, I wrote it down in my notes, so we're going to do it. Um, this idea that ghosts, do they have rights? Are they being, are they aggressing against people just by existing in this city? And do, are they unjustly imprisoned? I noticed that, that. That was part of the, the little montage. There was a, a copy of, what was it, the New Yorker that asked that question, do ghosts have civil rights? Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's probably where I got my note then. Okay, that makes sense. So do we think that these ghosts are aggressing against these property owners? It seems like they are. It's hard to really but, know. Because we didn't really ever see what they were doing very often. Right, yeah. Slimer is just like eating some food. But a lot of the other ghosts that get captured are just kind of existing or flying around or something like that and scaring well, people. That's not Slimer's food, though. He's taking it. It's not intended for him, right? Right. Uh, and yeah, he's I'm, I'm not a paying that... customer of the hotel. <laughs> <laughs> True. <laughs> um, yeah, it's hard to... I mean, Slimer... How much does he know? What does he know? Does he understand his existence? Uh, uh, who knows? Let's it's take it on the idea of them imprisoning any other ghost. Like, say, let's just say one of these ghosts is just flying around scaring people just by the fact that he exists, by the fact that he's a ghost. Does that, does that give the Ghostbusters the right to imprison him? I don't well, think I was, it does. I was looking at it from the perspective of what is the natural environment of a ghost? Assuming that a ghost, you know, like, it has this other plane of existence, and that plane of existence is its natural environment. And it seems like by leaving it, you know, it's possible you could say that by leaving its natural environment and encroaching on someone else's, that maybe it doesn't have a right to be there. So this I, is like I know if, that's a bit of a stretch, but <laughs> this would be like if if King a private King, property issue. Yeah, this this would be like if King Kong, rather than being brought over by the Jack Black character in the Peter Jackson version, if King Kong came over on a boat by himself. And just existed. I, right. I I have an issue. If just them existing though can't be an aggression, just to exist. No, not even if. Existing. But if they're exist, yeah, in uh, on uh, private property, and you know the the owner of that property doesn't want them there, then they have every right to tell them to leave. I don't know if that necessarily means that they have the right to imprison that ghost though. Maybe yeah, it would I mean, have been better if instead of imprisoning them, they were simply transporting them back to their natural environment. If they're like ghostly dimension? Yeah. Agreed. Right, but they don't, I don't have think that, that technology doesn't exist for that, right? So they're just doing the containment because it's it's the level that they have achieved that at that point. It was all they knew how to do. Right, so does that make the Ghostbusters immoral actors? I don't I don't really know cuz they were trying to you know they did have where people were having these ghosts on their property and they didn't want them there and so they had to do something with them. Mhm. It's hard to say. I don't, you know, and they they were doing the best they could. Maybe if they had been able to transport them back, they would have preferred to do that. Yeah, and when it gets to the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man at the end, I mean he's he's destroying property. So, you know, oh, yeah. he stopped. 
Definitely, yeah. I'm, I'm specifically talking just about the ghosts that are just kind of like flying around scaring people or just sitting around. Like the, the, um, in the very beginning, there's the, the librarian who just, I mean, it, well, the library is a public property, right? So it isn't necessarily owned by anybody. And she's just kind of sitting there reading books quietly. <laughs> and they came in and bothered her. Right. So. <laughs> yeah, these are our types of questions for sure. Uh, we usually don't have answers. We just explore them a little bit and move on. <laughs> right. Uh, hey, before we move on too much further, because we're, we're getting away from the beginning of the movie where there was this iconic song. And I know you guys wanted to talk about the song because you downloaded it and you've been playing it for days to get pumped up. Of course, it's the classic Ray Parker Jr. hit, uh, the Ghostbusters theme. Who you gonna call? Sing it. Up. Yeah, there's something strange in the neighborhood. <laughs> Who you gonna call? Who you gonna call? Ghostbusters. I was gonna say free market entrepreneurs, but. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> Ghostbusters has a better ring to it. Yeah. So, so uh, oh, go ahead, Daniel. Well, I was just going to throw a little trivia out at you guys that uh, apparently Ray Parker Jr. was spending you know, several days trying to come up with the song, and he was having trouble with it. He, he couldn't sleep, and he was uh, you know, having like writer's block, and he was watching late-night TV, and this plumber commercial came on that said, who are you going to call? And he was like, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. Yeah, yeah they're, they're, uh, the commercial in the movie is very much like a local TV, access TV, kind of low-budget commercial. It was a super low-budget commercial. Yeah. That was great. Yeah, I had the, uh, I remember having the old cassette from the movie as one of the few pieces of music that I owned as a, as a child. Classic, classic stuff. I remember it being so popular. I remember the music video, too. Although I wasn't very old when the movie came out. But even when I got old enough to really remember it and watch it, it still was really popular, it seemed to me anyway. And I remember the the music video that had the Ghostbusters in it. That is something I don't... I remember Ray Parker Jr. running around and singing, and I guess, yeah, the Ghostbusters were in that movie. Yeah, I think there was a scene when the Ghostbusters were in the video, and it was it was pretty funny. Yeah, so, so do you guys have any other specific scenes you want to talk about in this first movie? Before we get into like a bigger question of like the EPA and do they have any right to investigate and ensure safety and that sort of thing. One thing I was going to kind of uh, point out a little bit that I observed was just how these these guys were figuring it out for themselves. You know, they've got this situation at the library where they see this ghost for the first time. I'm assuming it's the first time that they actually see this this presence and they say, oh, well, what are we going to do? And, you know, in typical movies, it seems like people are going to call the police or call the military and get get uh, the government involved. But these guys, they they try to figure it out for themselves and whether that's a good or bad in the long run, you know, running around with unlicensed proton packs. I don't I don't know, but um, it, it is worth discussing and, and just thinking about it. Um, people trying to figure things out for themselves rather than just automatically knee-jerk reaction calling up uh, the government and using um, taxpayer resources in order to solve their problem. So, uh, so I, I thought that was kind of a neat, neat thing about the movie. Um, yeah, absolutely. That That's always a soft spot for me. Whenever a character in a movie doesn't like seek out some sort of 
authority figure or whatever, and they just take it upon themselves to do the thing or solve the problem themselves and believe in themselves and their own abilities. Uh, it's beautiful. I was going to mention that that part in the 1984 Ghostbusters when the books were flying across the library, you know, in the very beginning, they go into the New York Public Library and down into the basement area, and then you see the books flying across the shelves mysteriously, and it's all spooky. And um, I was I was going to say that if you look really closely at one of those books, it is uh, Ron Paul's and the Fed. Um, <laughs> <laughs> as it floats across there. So that's that's kind of a neat Easter egg. But He tried yeah. to convince me of this. <laughs> yeah, I kid, I kid. It, it's not really there, but I thought it'd be funny to funny to talk about. So. <laughs> the original one, <laughs> in 1984. Yeah, 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 exactly. Well, see, that's why I thought it, people, <laughs> people can pick up that it's, that it's a joke because it's before he actually wrote the book. So. <laughs> the thing that I noticed that I wrote down in my notes was in multiple instances in the movie, it didn't appear that they sought permission from anyone to do anything. They didn't right. seem oh. to seek permission to build their equipment, to, to outfit the firehouse, to start up their business. They didn't seem to, to appear to try to get licenses or, or anything for any of the things they were doing, even their emergency vehicle. <laughs> you know, like they just they just started driving around in it with the flashing lights and sirens and Right, and you can you can imagine if they had gone through all the paperwork and whatnot to try and license this technology and to get the EPA to pass on it and everything like that, it would have been a much longer, longer movie because you know how slow government is. Oh, I know. At dealing with technology, there probably just would have been no Ghostbusters. It wouldn't have been. It would be the the four guys or the three guys are sitting in a waiting room. Well, and then you'd have to ask too, like in the context of the movie, if if the disaster would have occurred because the Ghostbusters weren't around to help fix the situation. So, you know, if they had went that route, uh, theoretically, you know, would the disaster have just happened? And then because they were going through this complex regulation process, they wouldn't have been there to to avert it. So. By then, the city would have just been overrun with ghosts everywhere. Yeah, yeah. So, Indeed. I did, from a trivia standpoint, I thought it was kind of fun. Uh, you see the early appearance of the Stay Puff marshmallow bag in Sigourney Weaver's apartment. She's, like, bringing home the groceries, and, and you see that there. And then the eggs start popping and frying on the counter. And then, mysteriously, the little Stay Puff marshmallow bag isn't doing anything. So that's that's always a fun thing to watch out for if you're watching the movie is just to to see that and 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 see that nod to the marshmallow Stay Puft marshmallow guy later on in the movie. But uh, yeah, that's the, foreshadowing. That the, bag, that the bag was not melting, even though there was an egg frying on the counter right in front of it. I right. guess that was supposed to add to the supernatural spooky element. These marshmallows aren't melting. <laughs> I thought it was fun too how. Sigourney Weaver's character, she was a skeptic of the Ghostbusters at first. She, like, saw these guys on with their low-budget commercial on TV. And then, of course, Venkman was, was sort of a turnoff for her. But then when she had this problem, she she turned to them for help. And, again, you know, she doesn't turn to the police. She, she turns to these people 
who she observes as, as being able to help her, even though at first she thought, you know, these guys are jokes, you know? So, so, uh, I thought that was, that was something interesting too, how, um, again, people are assuming a little bit of risk by interacting with the Ghostbusters. They've got this problem and they call them up and they know that, you know, they may, may not be, um, as professional as like some huge mega corporation, but yet they're the ones who, who seem to be able to, to do what, what they need to be done. To do what nobody else can do. Yeah, to, exactly. Right. Yeah. And the, especially in the beginning, uh, the Sigourney Weaver character is worried that, you know, she's talking about things that are like supernatural, the things that she's seeing things, things that shouldn't be seen. And yeah, there's a worry. I think if she had gone to the police or any kind of a government operation, that they would just say she's crazy. They'd just blow her off. Yeah, they would have no belief in what she said. And you know, she even brought Venkman to her apartment, and he looked at it, and everything was fine. But he still, I believe, he still believed her in a certain way, right? Oh yeah, he seemed like he still believed her, even though he was acting like a doofus. (laughs) Right, he was more interested in her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he he was believing her just to get into her apartment and and to into the bedroom, right? He was, he was like, "Oh, well, let's check out in here." <laughs> but that that was the whole point of their low budget commercial, right? At the very end they say, "We believe you." Yeah, mm. we're ready to believe you. Right. Yeah, so hey, before we move on, I just wanted to mention something. Um so Julie, you you talked about how they're driving around their uh, ectomobile with emergency flashing lights uh without seeking permission from anybody. Uh-huh. Um, they actually did that in real life. Um, there's a note here in the trivia that says, the montage sequence of them running around New York City driving the Ectomobile were done on the first day and largely without permits. <laughs> That's and, awesome. And in one scene, you can see a real-life security guard chasing after them. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That's great. Yeah, that's the early 80s. Can't do that now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of fun so, that a, a libertarian movie about them not seeking permission, they actually literally don't. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty great. Indeed. Yeah, so uh, the movie continues on, and um, we find out that Zool is returning, and the gatekeeper and the keymaster get together, and there's a big climax movie, a big climax at the top of the, the building uh, where the State Five Marshmallow Command comes along, and there's a big battle. And I would say that, yes, uh, did anybody... You remember what the actual plan was? I mean, was it just the ghosts coming through into the new dimension to take over or to uh, a blending of worlds? I, I wasn't quite clear on that. Uh, they, he said uh, that all the prisoners would be released. Um, he was talking to the horse, the Rick Moranis character, when he was embodied by Gozer, I think. I think that was, there was something like, there was something special about that particular location where it was going to serve as like a gateway that would okay. release everything. That was my understanding. It was a little hard to follow some of the techno babble. Right. Well, that was something that I always hoped that I would see in a later movie, you know, kind of like in Beetlejuice where where they explore that alternate dimension world that the Beetlejuice is from. You see a little bit of that in that movie. I was kind of hoping for something like in a sequel with Ghostbusters where you would you would get to see what this ghostly dimension is like and if they've actually got a society or 
Uh, you know, that may be a little bit of a stretch, but, but, uh, since I'm really big into sci-fi and fantasy, that's always something that I, I've been curious about is, is, uh, like watching this movie this time, I was thinking, well, uh, they were talking about these, these creatures coming over and, and doing different things. And I was, I was in the back of my mind wondering, well, what's that like? Or do, and that relates back to, to your earlier question of, well, do these ghosts have rights? Are they, are they actual entities or are they just reflections of, of past lives? (laughs) But, uh, um, that's kind of a fun aspect of the movie too. Uh, just, Mm -hmm. just thinking about that a little bit. Yeah, so let's get into the uh, the main crux, the main villain in the movie. I would argue is not necessarily Gozer, um, but this EPA guy, or at least the big problem causer. Yeah, definitely. One of the big problem causers. Uh, so he represents the government and the EPA, and he has been tasked or took it upon himself to investigate the Ghostbusters and to see... What the, you know, what they're doing, this containment unit and whether it's safe and up to maybe some sort of a code or whatnot. Now later on, we, he actually just breaks in and shuts the thing down. Um, but before he does that, did anybody, I mean, I immediately have an aversion to like government bureaucrats, but if there's one thing that people like, especially minarchists like to point to is like, well, government has this right. If they're going to take our money, they at least have the right to protect us in some sort of a way, even if it's legitimate and it's all funded by theft. But do they have some, does he some, have some sort of obligation, do you think, to at least investigate these Ghostbusters? It's a new technology. It's a potentially dangerous technology with these proton packs and all these ghosts in one location and whatnot. Uh, do, do, I had an issue with him just being on their private property and not leaving when they asked him to and whatnot. But uh, a status could very much argue that, yeah, he's doing his job. He's um, he's checking out what he has to check out and to, to determine that if it's safe or not, even if he's has no idea what he's doing and he has no understanding of the technology. But at least he's trying to do his job. Uh, issues and discussion points for that? Yeah, anyway. I, I, I noticed from the beginning. It's hard to tell how much time it passed in the movie between when they first set up business and when this guy shows up. I noticed yep. during the montage that there was like a magazine cover from some scientific journal, I think, that actually specifically dealt with their technology. Okay. And I wondered, you know, if this has been out there, you know, like somebody has actually evaluated their technology or has been talking about it, why, why did it take so long, I guess, for this guy to suddenly start being worried about it. Mm -hmm. And it seems pretty clear, especially later during the big climax meeting with the mayor, that he was just deliberately persecuting them. Like he was just abusing his position specifically Mm -hmm. to persecute the Ghostbusters because he was a skeptic. He didn't really believe that there were ghosts, that that's what he really thought. He really thought that they were like releasing some chemical into the atmosphere that was causing people to hallucinate. So it almost oh, seems like he right. was there under false pretenses. Yeah, he was being vindictive. And his character's name is uh, Walter Peck, right? And yeah. He initially comes in and says, may I see the storage facility and Bill Murray, who I love in this movie. And apparently um, most of his lines are ad-libbed. Like he had a rough script, but he just made up most of what he said. That which does is not awesome. surprise me. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, you know, he says, no, you can't see the storage facility. And he goes, uh, Walter Peck says, why not? 
He says, because you did not use the magic word. <laughs> and he says, please to him. And he says, you go get a court order and I'll sue your ass for wrongful prosecution. Or persecution. <laughs> like, it was great. You know, this, like, he was giving an F you to the man, uh, the Bill Murray character, which I loved. And uh, side note, the, the guy who played Walter Peck, um, I think his name uh, was William Atherton. And he said that uh, for years after being in this movie, uh, that people would see him and hate him because he was <laughs> such a jerk in this movie as a, as part of the EPA. And he said it ruined his life. Oh, oh my goodness. He was, he was a very jerky character. I can imagine that. Yeah, it was well played. But did, did, did any of you think that, I mean, there would obviously be in a, in a, you know, Libertopia, there would be some sort of a, an incentive for the Ghostbusters to maybe have other people, other experts maybe sign off on their containment facility and that sort of thing, but to have this government entity just run in there and, you know, under the pretenses of whatever, but at least he's, you know, has the public safety at interest. Um, is there any kind of legitimacy to what he's doing? Well, like you say, I'm reminded of like the UL laboratories. It's as far as I know, it's a private entity that that kind of inspects electrical devices. You see on your electrical cord, it's got the little UL certification. And um, that's that's an organization that that does that privately. And it, of course, it's built up a name and a reputation for itself over time as as a respected agency a private agency, again, as far as I know, but uh, um, that, that people trust for the safe, you know, safe electrical equipment. Um, but uh, that that's like what you were saying. In, in a strictly libertarian society, my thought is that you would have private entities that would, or agencies that would, that would make it their business to, to inspect devices or inspect things to make sure that they're they're safe, uh, of course, on a voluntary basis. Not that anybody's forcing anybody to do anything, but uh, you know, if you want your product to be to be to sell well, you're going to want it inspected by this private group that will certify it as being safe. Uh, and so. I would think a business owner too would, as an incentive, to ease their customers' minds. If there was a group like that that was inspecting technology or whatever, that they would want to voluntarily have their technology inspected just so that their customers' minds would be eased. Maybe Definitely. Yeah, they would a, say, oh, a, well, our, our containment unit was inspected by such and such agency who has confirmed that it is perfectly safe, that this is something that they would want to do. And a non-governmental agency, like a totally voluntary thing. Yeah, a totally private entity. That yeah, just like, has a reputation for honesty and and safety and that sort of thing. Yeah. Hey, I just wanted to come back to uh, when he initially, the EPA guy comes in initially and gets rejected, right? And he leaves. But then he comes back later with a warrant and with police officers. And they just storm in. And uh, people are protesting. Like, uh, I think Janine is the uh, secretary, right? And she's like, yes. this is private property. You can't just come in here. <clears throat> And Bill Murray finally comes down and, and says to the EPA guy, like, hey, you shut that thing down. We're not going to be held responsible for whatever happens. Like, it's your, this is your yeah, fault. This is on your head. <laughs> and right. Of when, course, you take a, when you turn it off, you're taking, essentially taking ownership of the result of 
your actions, yeah. Right, and then, of course, he does it, and all hell breaks loose, and then the Ghostbusters end up in jail. Yeah, because then he immediately blames them for what happened. You're in violation, criminal violation of the Environmental Protection Act, I think was what he said, even though he was the one that just shut it down. <laughs> the device that he was suspicious was harming the environment. Yeah, it, it was incredibly like reckless, circle. doesn't it? Yeah, it did I mean, seem wouldn't, incredibly reckless. Wouldn't you want to learn more about what you're doing before you do a thing, especially when you're, you're dealing with this brand new technology? You want to learn as much as you can about it. It's potentially dangerous. I mean, if you're... I'm disarming a bomb. I want to know more about this bomb before I just start pushing buttons. And right, it, did I mean, see, it did seem like he came back, and like there was no indication that he spent any time investigating their technology. He well, just and, came and, back with paper. And, and the, the Ghostbusters were trying to tell him, like, hey, don't do this. You know, it's, it's going to be bad. <laughs> and he's like, <laughs> whatever. And even the, uh, the Con Ed guy was like, uh, I don't know if I should do this. And he basically orders him to do it. Yeah, and even the police officer that escorted him in seemed like he wasn't too cracked on it either. Which, I mean, it would have been better if the police had just said, forget it, we're not, we're not doing this. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, like the local sheriff had stepped in and said, well, you're, you're overstepping your bounds. But the I, did like, I did like where the cop was like, uh, to the EPA guy, like, I don't tell you how to do your job. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And that was another thing we noticed, too, that it did seem like the Ghostbusters actually had a good reputation with the local police. And so I wonder, I mean, I'm, I'm surprised that the EPA guy was even able to get somebody to come in. Just because they, see, they seemed like they had a good reputation, a good relationship with each other. Well, they're just following orders, ma'am. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> But they did definitely, I mean, these Ghostbusters at this point in time are very famous, and they're very popular, especially in the city, right, because there's all these magazine covers with them on them, and when they're running through the streets, I mean, people are slapping them on the back and cheering them and whatnot, and, but yeah, it, it's interesting that this uh, Walter Peck guy taking such a, you know, a vehement hatred for them, when everybody else seems to like them. Yeah, and then... uh when they're in the prison, of course, all the ghosts are out wreaking havoc, like they're becoming taxi drivers or they're chasing people around. And so the mayor releases them and brings them in for this, um, you know, climactic moment, right? Uh, Julie, you, you made reference to this earlier. Yeah. And I just want to point out two things and then we can discuss a little bit further. But, of course, Walter Peck, uh, the EPA guy, is protesting to the mayor, like, you can't possibly leave these guys. And he says something... I don't recall exactly what it was, but then Venkman replies, yes, it's true. This man has no dick, which I think was hilarious. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's hilarious. And then I think it's the uh, assistant mayor or the constable of the police or somebody who tells the mayor, just think of it, man. You'll, save, you'll have saved the, million, the lives of millions of registered voters. No, that was Venkman. Oh, was it Venkman? Okay, it was yeah. Venkman who said that. that. That just, he really shone in that scene because you saw Venkman... He was just the quintessential, like he knew how to talk his way out of anything or talk his way yeah. into anything. And that was the key right there. You will have saved the lives of millions of registered voters. And then the mayor gets right. a little smile on his face. And that was it. That's He got right to the heart of the mayor right there. His chances for re-election. <laughs> yeah, not for any principled stance, just because yeah. <laughs> he wants to continue having this power over people. Yeah. I do like that once it was decided that, decided that they could go uh, be released, and they said, all right, come on, let's go run some red lights. 
And this movie, they're rewatching it recently. There are just so many quotes, especially during the Stay Puft Marshmallow scene, uh, that were just hilarious. Uh, I, I only wrote down like one of them, but there were a bunch of them. Um, I think it was Vankman who's like, well, and like the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man is crashing down and it's like, what are we going to do? And he's like, well, he's a sailor. He's in New York. If we get this guy laid, we won't have any trouble. <laughs> <laughs> But there were a whole bunch of uh, just super great lines. And if they're all ad-libbed, that's just, uh, man, Bill Murray is just a comedic genius. Yeah, and that reminds me of the most famous line from this movie, which was during the mayor scene. He says, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. <laughs> that's, yes. that, that's a big difference between this one and the 2016 one, is that this movie just had so many quotable lines in it that really stand the test of time. Yeah, I don't think that people are going to be looking back at the 2016 version with the same fondness at all. No, I don't think so at all. Yeah, yeah you know, this might be a good point to shift over to that one, because I feel like we've talked uh, a bunch about the 1984 version, unless we want to wrap that one and then move to the next one, or just move to the next one and then wrap both together. What do you guys think? Yeah, that sounds good. All right, yeah, so let's shift over to the new one. So... Just, I haven't seen it, but I, I did want to mention that when it first came out and I saw the previous for it, I was like, it's so in-your-face SJW. And even uh, Gavin McInnes did a preview of it without seeing it, saying, this thing's going to fail because they're shoving it in your face, this pro-SJW message. Um, and I think it was before the movie even came out that he released this. And, and I sent that to Robert a while back, like back in July or whenever this came out. I was like, yeah, this thing's going to be a crap fest. Um, but it turns out based on uh, our pre-show calls with you guys, that it, it wasn't as in-your-face, and it was actually half-decent, the movie. Right, so let's just give a little bit of uh, history around this movie. Um, it's fairly recent, so probably a lot of people remember all this stuff, but um, this movie, when it was first announced, and they released a, a trailer, it was just going to be hated, and the trailer, I think it might still be a record, the very first official trailer has um, nearly 300,000 likes and over a million dislikes. <laughs> so it was just super, super panned by any kind of uh, fan. Everybody just assumed it was going to be terrible. And uh, even though the director, Paul Feig, and uh, Tina Fey and Melissa McCarthy are all fairly, you know, really well-talented people and comedians, um, there was a famous or fairly famous, at least in my circles, uh review of this movie by Milo Yiannopoulos where he kind of slammed Leslie Jones on Twitter and then he got banned from Twitter for that and then he got reinstated and now he had a big old scandal and anyway, his whole roller coaster is going on with that but um, this movie actually did fairly well. It uh, made its money back and then some, I mean we don't know the uh, marketing costs of the movie so it probably broke about even maybe, who knows, maybe less. But it had a $144 million budget, and it made $229 million at the box office. And it's sitting at about a 73% on Rotten Tomatoes, 60% on Metacritic. So it's it wasn't the worst movie I've ever seen. Uh, I want to say, like, the first two-thirds of it were kind of charming. I, I really liked – I just I'm, – I'm a fan of Melissa McCarthy. I think she's funny, and I like Kristen Wiig. I think she's funny. Uh, the Leslie Jones character I didn't find funny at all, and I didn't find the Kate McKinnon funny at all, but – uh, different strokes for different folks, I guess. Um, I don't, I'd be interested to see what you guys thought of the, the funniness. But there are definitely differences between the two movies in terms of tone and, um, you know, style and, you know, theme and, like, 
the capitalism versus just like this four Ghostbuster girls saving the city from ghosts. Girl power. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, the, the first thing that I noticed was that distinct difference in the ghost. The original Ghostbusters were setting out to set up a business, provide a service, and make a profit. And in the 2016 Ghostbusters, they set up like a scientific research lab. <laughs> and they weren't open for business. They weren't advertising. They weren't taking in money. They weren't. I actually wasn't even sure how they were supporting themselves because they had right, all been fired. <laughs> yeah, and then they get a they get like a an office above a Chinese restaurant, and there's this running gag in the movie where Melissa McCarthy keeps ordering food from this terrible Chinese restaurant. And I know, I noticed that too. Terrible food. And it's like, why do you keep ordering this terrible food? You know it's going to be terrible. Why? Why? <laughs> there, it's not like there's a lack of Chinese places in New York City. Right? Imagine. Yeah, you can trip over yourself and find a good restaurant in New York. Right. So she keeps ordering from the same food and. Always terrible, and she's always complaining about it. But um, uh, there, there are a bunch of differences other than the fact that it just seemed to be women for women's sake. Um, I had an issue with, other than um, it just not being super funny, um, although I did really enjoy the uh, Chris Hemsworth character, the the joke about him listening to a saxophone or playing saxophone. That was really funny. <laughs> but um, when they were testing their equipment, they just like went to some alley and then started blowing things up. I thought that was really like even more reckless and terrible. Did you, yeah. did you guys have any of that? Well, it also seemed like, and maybe I'm just picking on it for no good reason. It seemed like it took them a lot longer to figure their stuff out. Like it seemed like yeah. a significant amount of time in the movie was them trying to figure out their technology. Right. Whereas in the, would, in the original, they kind of already had it all figured out from the get go. Even if yes. they hadn't tested it yet, they still kind of understood it. They were ready to go. Yes, very true. But how they did it, I mean, they just went to like an alley by their by their sto- store or whatever and just started, started shooting things. <laughs> yeah, and started shooting things. And like, here's this thing. Why don't you just pull the trigger and see what happens? And she starts flying around and she could be destroying people and killing people. And of course she, she could have destroyed half the building next to her. And Yeah, I mean, that building could have fallen on them and killed a bunch of people or it just seemed like a real weird i mean sure they don't have a lot of money but you would think if you're testing out this unknown technology you would go to some place that's like uninhabited maybe like an open field somewhere or something yeah, i don't know just just me just me maybe i'm a, maybe i'm a weirdo but <laughs> if i've got like things that are going to explode and do a lot of damage i'm going to go to an open unpopulated area just just an idea um, but what do you guys think of this movie in general? Uh, I thought it was fun. Um, like you, you said, it, it does have some pretty distinct differences. Um, I thought ironically, uh, while I did enjoy the character, I forget his name that, that played the receptionist. Um, Chris Hemsworth. yeah, Chris Hemsworth. Um, while, while we supposedly live in this highly enlightened progressive era, you know, I, I felt like in his character, I mean, this could be just me speaking as the man, but <laughs> um, that he was a little more sexist than than uh, the receptionist in the original Ghostbusters, because in the original Ghostbusters, at least the 1984 movie, she was intelligent. Um, she she wasn't portrayed in a, in a sexual fashion. 
but in the the 2016 movie, Chris Hemsworth was portrayed in in kind of this sexual fashion, and he was a complete ditz. So uh, I I can't say that you know I believe that there was some kind of conspiracy there, but I just felt it was it was a little ironic that um, you know we we're always being forced to think about how how we need to have this politically correct mindset, but then in this movie, you know, it, it didn't seem to me that it was, it was very politically correct. Um, so, uh, I don't know what Julie uh, would say about that. That's kind of why I thought Julie would really be excellent coming on to, to talk about it from a female perspective. Cause if I say these things, people will just say, well, you're a guy. That's why you're saying that. <laughs> so, actually, actually, Julie, they, how do you, what, well, how do you my, feel? They say, they say you're a fucking white male. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Patriarchy. All right. Sorry. <laughs> Go ahead. No, it's it's true. There in a lot of media, especially in like sitcoms, like the the dad is always like the dumb one. Uh huh. Like Simpson and other. I mean, all all the movies, all the TV shows, all the sitcoms, like King of Queens. And I mean, I don't, I couldn't even name them all. But how do you feel about that? Is is that kind of insulting to you? It, it, somewhat insult. I mean, I understand you want to set up different character types for com- comedic effect. But when like the dad is always the moron. It's it kind of great on me. Yeah, I absolutely notice it for sure. Um, the like you said, the Homer Simpson character, um, but uh, I, I felt like it just wasn't limited though in this movie to to that receptionist character. It seemed like a lot of the the male figures, maybe all the male figures, were kind of portrayed as as either being a villain or being just jerks. Like the poli- the mayor politician, he was he was far and above more jerky and self-serving than the mayor in the 1984 Ghostbusters. But, uh, um, that was just, that was yeah, a, a perspective I noticed at least. Yeah, for sure. Like even Bill Murray comes in and has a, a role as a skeptic where he just doesn't believe in ghosts and that sort of thing. Yeah. And he was thought of as a villain too. Sure. Yeah. That, that was something that, that I noticed about the differences, the way that men and women were treated. And I suppose my opinion is supposed to have more weight because I'm a woman, so I can actually have a right to talk about these things. <laughs> was I did notice that there was not a single man that was like a main character that was not, or that was portrayed in any kind of a positive light. He was either the receptionist who was, who was beautiful but extremely stupid, so stupid he couldn't even figure out how to answer the phones, which was kind of a running gag. I mean, they, you know, they got some funny stuff out of it, but it just seemed really contrived to me. Yeah, like even the university leader guy. Oh, that guy was just a total idiot. (laughs) Yeah, he was completely incompetent. And And completely unprofessional. Right. Yeah, Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. And, and then, you know, the, of course, the bad guy, the main villain, which is also a difference between the two, was that in this one, the villain was a human, a human man who mm-hmm. was evil. <laughs> and then every other man was either incompetent or just an idiot or stupid. Or and, and I noticed this and I don't know if I don't know if your average person would notice this, if I noticed it just because I was looking for it or because I'm more discerning than the average movie watcher, which was why I said it was a little more subversive and less in your face. Yeah, because there's no line where they're like, yeah, girl power, girls rule, boys drool, that sort of thing. Yeah, but they didn't really was, do that. 
Yeah, they didn't come out and say it, but they had all the characters do it. So yeah. <laughs> what are we supposed to think? And, and that was another thing, too. I I told Lewis that it was kind of ironic that if, if that's what they were trying to portray, like these the women were all, you know, supposed to be very intelligent. And yet they had the main um, Aaron Gilbert. She's supposed to be this very intelligent woman. And yet she's constantly drooling all over their doofus secretary <laughs> yes. Just because he's pretty, you know, like she has no more respect for herself than that to try to seek out an equal instead of just drooling all over this buffoon just because he's attractive. Right. And I thought that was kind of ironic that they portrayed that because it didn't really seem very empowering for a woman to behave that way. <laughs> yeah. Agreed. Um, did you guys have any, I mean, I thought that the Melissa McCarthy character was funny, but I generally enjoy her in all the movies that she's in. Um, it didn't seem like they spent a whole lot of time like coming up with like jokes for the script. It seemed to me like they were like I don't know ad libbing or just having a bunch of scenes, like having the actors run through the scenes a bunch of times and see what they do. Um, but overall, especially in the first two thirds of the movie, I didn't have too much of an issue with like the entertainment value. Um, but for me, the, the third act, it was just a bunch of CGI ghosts running around and it, it seemed like all of a sudden the girls were like super good at, um, like blasting ghosts. And, <laughs> I don't know. It's, just, it's because you know, they got the new pistols. That's, that's what made them so good at it. Right. And all of a sudden they're just like these action heroes, just super <laughs> good, you know, shooting them all. Yeah. It, anyway, it fell apart for me. At that point, yeah. If it was well, even together to begin with, well, I definitely felt like the the team, even though they didn't they didn't get on my nerves like I thought they were going to, just because of the way it was marketed. I I kind of expected it to be one of those overt girl power things, and the the characters yeah. didn't bother me. They were you know fairly likable, and you wanted them to succeed. I would agree with that, but they didn't have. They didn't have the rapport with each other that it seemed like the original Ghostbusters did. Extremely different personalities that really played well off of each other. You know, lots of the quotable lines and, and the stuff that, that made the first Ghostbusters so endearing. I mean, that was missing. Yeah, I, I couldn't think of a single quote from this movie. There might have been a, a couple funny ones, but they escaped me at this moment. Um, whereas the original, and sure, I've had decades to remember Ghostbusters, but... Yeah, I like we said, I don't think this one's going to spend the test of time. Although, I don't even know if they're going to come up with a sequel. Um, although, I, as I recall, the uh, like the end credits very much, very much um, hinted at it. Because it, it implied a, one. Yeah, they get a call or something like that, and they're like, who's Azul? So very much they're going to redo that if they make a sequel. Although, Lewis, did you say that you heard that they probably weren't pursuing a sequel? Um, I read that somewhere, but I don't know if that's uh, factual or not. <laughs> um, I know that Sony has invested a ton of money into the franchise, so they're probably going to do some spinoffs, maybe some like animated series, uh, possibly a t- TV show. Um, but I thought I read somewhere that that a second movie was not in the works, just because it was it was hard to to make the money back for for the 2016 one yeah and for a movie that really just pretty much remade the first one for me 
um, you know, maybe I'm biased that I have this love of entrepreneurship and capitalism and free association and that sort of thing. And that was like the, really the heart for me of the first one. And for that to be taken away in the, this remake really sours it for me. Um, so I, I guess that's the main reason that I have against it. The SJW aspects, I mean, just having it be women for women's sake, it made me not so much want to see it. Um, but I, again, I'm not super against it. If, if they, if some director has some artistic vision and they go, well, I really want women because I want to explore female relationships and that sort of thing. Um, I'm fine with that. Uh, but this seemed to be more along the lines of, Hey, let's just slot women in for men and have them be the exact same characters. What are you going to say, Daniel? Well, does the new movie make any reference to the old movie? Like, at all? Are they saying, oh, they're reviving something that was 30 years past? Or no. is it just totally re, re-ignition of the entire thing? Right, re-ignition. Like, um, the Christian Wig and Muslim McCarthy characters had written a book at the very beginning that talks about how ghosts are real. But the Christian Wig character has distanced herself from that, and she's trying to get a job at, like, a real quote-unquote real university. She was trying to get tenure. I think it was at Columbia University, maybe. Yeah, that's right. And she's embarrassed by this book. And so she goes to Melissa McCarthy saying, hey, why is this being sold on Amazon? I'm going up for tenure. I can't have this them find out about this. Uh, so, yeah, this is very much a people are discovering that ghosts are real sort of a thing. And all the um, the original Ghostbusters that are still alive come back. Although I think the... Um, uh, the Winston character, he's like the, he owns the, um, the Hearst company. He's the uncle, um, the uncle of yeah. the, the Ghostbuster that kept uh, borrowing the, the hearses. So these, these right. are cameos then, right? Like, yeah. They're not, they're not coming back as Ghostbusters. They just happen to have little small bits in this. Right. Dan Aykroyd is a taxi driver. Uh, yeah. Winston's the Hearst owner and, uh, the, Bill Murray guy. was the, Bill Murray, yeah, the, the, the skeptic, skeptic debunker. Right, who thinks that ghosts are all fake and these people are just liars. And he dies, sadly. Spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> right, he gets thrown out a window. So. And it, it, it did have um, Sigourney Weaver and uh, I forget the name of the actress that played Janine. Oh, that's right. They uh, were is in it the, Polly Potts, is that right? Yeah, that's right. Annie Potts. Annie Potts. They had little cameos in it too. No, no Rick Moranis though. No Rick Moranis. I don't know why. Yeah, he was kind of funny in this one, or in the first one. <laughs> <laughs> they did have Gabe from The Office though. I don't know if anybody's an Office fan, but, but yeah, that uh, there at the that, beginning that was that was the very opening scene, and I actually thought that opening scene was probably the best part of the movie. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. I was getting into that when he was trying to run up the stairs and the stairs collapse and then it goes straight into that Ghostbusters theme music and I thought, yeah, this is pretty good. <laughs> but but I kept I kept expecting Gabe to like whip out his little electronic piano and, and start playing some, some uh, <laughs> you know, techno tune or something because that's what he does in the office, so... And my apologies. I don't know what his actual name is. I keep. I don't either. <laughs> no, that's, that's what we do. We refer to people just as however we can think of them, like by the character name, by what they've played before, or the actor's name. We we interchange it. Indeed, we do. So, does anybody have any other big issues with Ghostbusters the 2016? Or Daniel, do you have any points you want to make? Or anybody? 
I'm kind of running out of juice on this one here. Well, I I noticed that in addition to to it just being the woman Ghostbusters, that it also had kind of this anti-bullying message. Yeah, I don't know if you really caught definitely. that because that was the main the main villain was was the guy who was going around town setting up these devices that were bringing ghosts over with the ultimate goal of bringing all of the ghosts over to completely destroy everybody who had bullied him in the past. Yeah, he was the weird guy who'd been misunderstood and bullied and he was wanting to seek his revenge and, you know, blah, 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 like we haven't seen that a thousand times before in movies. But And, but, and then in the end, the girl Ghostbusters try to relate to him as being people who had also been bullied in the past and they just chose a better way. Yeah, that that was just all pretty contrived. <laughs> That's what fell apart a little bit for me in this movie was that I didn't enjoy the villain as much uh, because I thought that it was, they were trying to relate it too much to the real world as opposed to the first one where the villain was, I mean, you, of course you had the EPA that was the villain, but the ghosts themselves kind of seemed like they were the villains and more of the supernatural realm and the unexplained. And um, I can remember as a kid thinking, well, what's going to happen with these ghosts or what are they going to do? Cause, cause nobody, nobody knew, you know, nobody knows. But then when you've got this, this human guy running around in the 2016 movie and you, know, you, you kind of feel like, you know, where that's going. So, yeah, I thought the, the villain was a fairly weak, for me too. Um, I don't know if they were trying to make any kind of a statement as far as be nice to people or else they could do terrible things. I, 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 <laughs> <laughs> well, it was, it was hard to really pin down, I guess. I mean, kind of like you said, where the first two thirds of it were all right. And then the last just kind of fell apart. It did seem like they didn't really have, I guess, an ultimate point or an ultimate message other than some of these SJW things that they were throwing in there. Right. Whereas the first Ghostbusters was just very clearly like a good guy versus bad guy, um, good guys versus the government, <laughs> and the little guy versus the big guy. You know, it was just, it was pretty clear in that movie that it was just kind of a, you know, an underdog, underdogs making a name for themselves doing something, getting back out up on their feet and doing it all themselves. It didn't seem like they had any hidden propaganda or <laughs> anything that they were trying to trying to shove down anybody's throat. Right. I would definitely agree with that. I mean, there was a heart to the movie, but it didn't seem like they were trying to shove down some sort of a message down your throat, like preaching and proselytizing to you. Well, and too, at the end of the, the 2016 Ghostbusters, they they end up making good by getting a government grant, basically. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know, that's how they get their success is uh, getting a bunch of government uh, uh, funds to, to keep going on as, as Ghostbusters. So it's not like that they're actually being successful by providing a service like in the first one. Um, no, they're just getting the New York City government to fund them to so that they don't have any more problems. Yeah, and that that that's got to be the most anti- antithetical part for me. I, that that just I, the whole point of the Ghostbusters to me was these entrepreneurs going out and providing a service that's desired by customers. And if your whole goal is to get some sort of a government handout in order to prop up your business, 
Well, you're not actually providing a service anybody actually wants or is willing to pay for. Yeah, exactly. Well, well, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say that kind of leads me into the, to want to talk a little bit about like the uh, the this big conversation with the defunding the arts right now, where a lot of artists and and uh, PBS supporters are wanting their tax dollars they, to get money to support these things. And and as an artist myself, I'm always thinking, well, why can't we accomplish these things without government grants. It's almost like you can't be an artist unless you're getting a government grant or, you know, you can't have quality TV unless the government's paying for it. And, and I'm always, I'm just thinking, well, how did it get to this that people are always thinking that you can't have quality school without having government school or public school, or you can't have nice streets without the government paying for it. You know, it's just, it's kind of ridiculous, but but, yeah, that's that mind trick that government pulls when once they start doing a thing, it, people start assuming that that's the way it gets done and that's the only way to do it. As if, yeah. you know, as if this country wasn't built, or people didn't build these things before we had the EPA or the education department or the income tax or, you know, I mean, it, it goes to show you that when these things are threatened to be defunded, Oh, all of a sudden donations just start pouring in from people who actually do want to support that bank. Well, which just we proves the point entirely that Indeed. it's not necessary. The people mm-hmm. people are will pay for what they consider to be valuable. Right. Well, and with it being tax time too, I think that's a that's a great point for sure. <laughs> so, so with people having to pay their taxes, you know, you, you got to ask those questions like, is this really important? Could it be voluntarily funded instead? Right. Yeah, anything worth doing is uh, worth being voluntary. That's right. Government, their idea is so good, you have to be enforced with a gun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that that was like you said with the, with that aspect of the Ghostbusters movie being such polar opposites where the first one was about entrepreneurs and the second one just was completely missing that. And and it even felt like anything that they may have given you with the right hand portraying the government as an annoyance or a nuisance, they completely took away with their left hand at the end by saying, now the government's going to come in and fund you. Right. As the, the saviors. Right. So it's like, okay, that just excuses everything that they did before it's the political shell game yeah yeah that's yeah so at the end um yeah big disappointment um dan do you have any uh any points to add i know you haven't seen the movie but you've been hearing us talk about it did it raise any thoughts well based on the conversation it sounds like it's not as bad as i was expecting it to be though i still don't really have a desire to watch it <laughs> um i'll I have the original one, and I'd rewatch that one in a heartbeat. It's fun. The like you guys had said earlier, the the lines are memorable and funny. Bill Murray is incredible in it. Um, I like that the villain is the EPA and the government, like being heavy-handed and screwing things up. That's a good. <laughs> it's always a good message for me. And I like that they're entrepreneurial. You know, they're not looking to government for the uh, handout to, you know, try to solve solve people's problems, they're doing it, they're taking it upon themselves, and to see that or hear about that being totally removed from the storyline in the new one is uh, is disheartening. 
And I wonder if perhaps it has something to do with, you know, in 1983-84 when they were making this original one, you know, there was still the Soviet Union and it was still like capitalism versus communism. And, and shortly thereafter, a few years later, the collapse of the Soviet Union and, and everyone's all of a sudden free market and, and everything. But it's been, you know, 30 more years now. And uh, it seems like people have focused on areas that aren't really um, principle based or fundamental based. Now they're like, which words can you use to say something about someone without offending them? You know, so it's like the the narrative of society, and that's really loose term. <laughs> but it seems like that the entertainment has shifted away from real fundamental questions and more towards like SJW type tinge to it. And so it, it's not surprising that they lose that in the new one. Right, and you've made the point many times, and it's it's the the capitalism that has allowed them the time and the luxury to come up with these. Stupid ideas of, in my opinion, stupid ideas and superfluous ideas of, should we call this person Zim or him or he or who cares? And I mean, if you want me to call you that, I'll call you that. But don't get upset when I call you a her because you look like a her. Uh, yeah, it's the capitalism has created the wealthy, the wealth and the environment to allow them the luxury to get upset about these things. Yeah, exactly. I don't know about you guys, but when I was a kid, I never would have dreamed that, that society would be like this now. <laughs> you, know? you know, I always had, um, I, I thought that things were, were always getting better. I mean, I never would have dreamed that we'd be having this discussion in 2016 about, about all, all of these different things. I mean, and I grew up in a pretty rural school too, but I just, I always thought that, hey, we're, we're, We've made so much remarkable progress in this area. I mean, that was back in like 1993, 94. And, uh, and, and then within the last four or five years, it seems like surprise. We, we've stepped back even further than, uh, you know, we've like lost 50 years progress or something. I don't know. Yeah. No, you're right. It, it, well, it, that's why we call them the regressive left. It just yeah. It's like we're yeah. stuck back. Well, and it seems like the division. That, you know, while claiming to be trying to equalize everyone, they're actually dividing everyone even more and more than they already were. Yeah. Yeah. And it, equality, we will I have a hard time that. wrapping my mind around it. Like, it doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I wonder if it has well, anything to do with the rise of social media and sort of this, um, this peer pressure, this group think like in a lot of uh, Asian societies, you'll see them keeping each other in line. And this was part of Mao's struggle sessions. And uh, I think we were talking with Drake on a recent episode where it's, it's sort of prevalent in Japan as well. Um, but because now your thoughts and, and everything are not in social interaction uh, in, in person, but now it's out in the, you know, in the internet. And so it's sort of, has more of a permanence to it and more people see it. There's like more visibility to it that people are now conforming a bit more than, than perhaps they were in the past. And so these bad ideas start to take root uh, with this emotional thinking. And there's a whole lot of virtue signaling, right? Like, so people will promote stories that um, align with what their expectations of, of people's approval are going to be. Like there was an example the other day, uh, this was mentioned in the Tom Woods group where um, a guy was, uh, out with his boss and some clients. And this guy is a Tom Woods listener. He's, 
He knows that the housing bust wasn't a result of deregulation. Uh, he knows that, um, you know, government, whenever they're involved, really screw things up. But, but the boss and the clients were talking about uh, all these things and saying, oh, the government needs to step in here and fix this and fix this other thing. And he just bit his tongue. He didn't say anything because he didn't want to put his, uh, his career at risk. Uh, he didn't want to, you know, offend the client or look bad in front of his boss. So I think that there's a natural incentive, unfortunately, to not go against the grain because there's a social media, because there's um, this prevalent thought uh, in incorrect, and I'll, I'll be bold and say they're incorrect uh, in their incorrect thinking. Yeah, exactly. Well, and that's something that we've struggled to. I know Julie and I, we've, uh, with even family interactions, we'll go and, and spend the day at uh, either her family or my family, and and we've got people that that uh, are engaged in certain professions and so forth. And and we'll, a lot of times we'll just bite our tongue because we don't really want to get uh, create contention. <laughs> um, uh, and you don't set out doing that. I mean, we're always setting out to be great ambassadors for libertarianism, but but yet. It seems like people nowadays have just lost that capability to discuss that you're you're always going to get somebody else who, even if you're trying to discuss it from a friendly perspective, they're going to look at it as like you're attacking them or you're attacking their beliefs. And and uh, so that's what I was referring to a little bit earlier, where it seems like we've lost uh, progress over the last 40 or 50 years where we we can't discuss things. We can't share ideas without getting mad at each other and <laughs> so um or, or preemptively could, punched in the face right yeah, yeah. <laughs> well it, it's all about you know the identity politics where people's ideas are somehow equated with their very person yeah. and it's just the, across the board so that if you do criticize those ideas or if you suggest maybe those ideas are wrong then you're basically attacking them. And so they respond to you as if you just attacked them. And we are missing that ability to just sit down and rationally discuss ideas. You know, we shouldn't hold them so tightly that they're wound into our very being. We should understand them as being ideas, and we should be willing to set aside bad ones in favor of good ones. But you're not going to do that if you're not even willing to discuss it. <laughs> you know, it's unfortunate that these bad ideas have a veneer of being compassionate and on their face maybe appear correct until you dig down uh, a little bit beneath the surface. You know what I'm saying? Because I think a lot of these people have good intentions and they think that they're wanting the right things and they, they think that perhaps the only way to solve a problem is the government and so they don't look at the gun in the room, they look at Okay, what's what's the bill say it's intended to do, not what it does it actually do? Oh yeah. But uh, it seems like the left or even statists have sort of this easy answer to everything, like oh, just get the government to do it. Whereas we have more of a okay, well if you unpack it and really look at how things work, what you're doing is actually going to subsidize the problem and increase it. You're paying people to you know do make poor decisions or, or whatever, you know, whatever it is, if you analyze it deep enough, you'll come around to the, what I believe would be the anarcho-capitalist perspective, which is let people engage in voluntary transactions. And so long as they're not initiating force or committing fraud against anyone else, it's none of your business. And that's the thing that people have a hard time 
a hard time accepting that there are things that just are none of their business. Because in yeah. our social media world, everything is our business. <laughs> you know, it's right. like we hear about everything. Something happens like half halfway across the country, and we think that it's our business to to even have an opinion about it. When it, it really should just be that community's business. It's their job to figure out how to solve the problem. We don't even really have anything to say about it because it doesn't affect us. And just the idea that there are things that aren't our business, that's really hard for people to accept. Yeah, and that's something that I've kind of tried to talk about a little bit through Libertopia is just that if it's in a community halfway around the world, it's not really our business. It's that community's business to take care of, of whatever issue they're dealing with. And, and Or, you know, if it's something that's going on in, in New York City, that's New York City's problem. It's not Los Angeles's problem or the people of Los Angeles to go travel all the way across the country and start protesting in New York City. I mean, uh, I don't really know why we just can't let our own communities take care of things and, and figure out solutions for themselves um it's it's just kind of a crazy mindset to me but but uh that seems to be the way a lot of people do things now it is the uh, the internet has made the world a whole lot smaller so you, you were once upon a time you maybe had like a half an hour of national news a day or something now you have it at your fingertips all over the planet and yeah you uh you're I guess maybe instinct to care and to help and to do and gets conflated with, well, government should do this. And uh, that's where I have an issue with it. I mean, it's, it's one thing to pledge your dollars to support a thing. It's another to say, well, government should get involved and force people to do a thing. That's, that's where you cross the line morally for me. Yeah, and that your- seems to be people's first instinct. Their first instinct is not to think I should personally contribute time or money or effort to this thing that I care about. The first instinct is that the government should do something about it. Yeah, which is, Robert, you spending my money. (laughs) Right. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think that this this, uh, conversation could go on forever. (laughs) (laughs) So why don't we wind it back to the movie and maybe do some uh, final takes, uh, compare and contrast of both, and then uh, we can finish out with telling people where they can find more of your work and then we'll uh, shut this one down. Awesome. Yeah. Sounds great. Well, I'll, I'll uh, defer to Julie because I think Julie's has a lot of great insight. And of course, again, being the, the uh, female perspective. So if, if you have anything you'd like to say about it, Julie. Well, something that I noticed about the first one that really hit home to me was the, the local emphasis on everything, that it was a movie about New Yorkers who were living in New York City, who were experiencing a problem in New York City that they were trying to solve. It was all very local um, in its emphasis, and they seemed to really care about their town and their community, so much so that the very last line of the movie was Winston's character standing on top of the building saying, I love this town. <laughs> you know, it was it was a very even though New York is a very big city, the emphasis still seemed to me that it was just more about them and their community and how much they cared about their community and wanted to help it with their business. And I didn't notice that so much in the second one 
it seemed like it was, it's hard to really say, it just didn't seem like it had that heartwarming feel of like they just loved New York and their community. I mean, it was really just about their research and it's yeah, hard. Exactly. I'm having a hard time coming up with the words. You just didn't really get that sense of locality, which is something that, that Lewis and I both, it kind of sits with us is just more of an emphasis on your own community, you know, being, you know, say a New Yorker, as opposed to I'm an American, you know, the, that the emphasis seemed to be there, that we have a greater appreciation for that. Very cool. Yeah, for me, um, I would just echo your sentiments and to say that the second movie, the remake, is mostly just this kind of hollow, saccharine imitation of a movie. It didn't really have that heart that I was looking for, the driving philosophy or force that um, really made me care about those characters and what they were doing. Um, I didn't necessarily identify not necessarily because they were women, just because of what they were doing. They didn't have the same motivations that um, I really identified with in the first movie. So it's hard for for us to to identify with, you know, like the scholarly world, people who are just trying to do scholarly research. We're not going to identify with that. The businessmen, you know, we can understand. Yeah. Well, and I was going to say, like, as far as, uh, female characters that I've really enjoyed. You know, I think of like the Divergent movie recently that we saw. I, I really enjoyed her as a character. I felt like I could identify with her as a character. Um, and then uh, the Hunger Games movie with Katniss, I thought, man, you know, she's an awesome character. I can really identify with her struggle in those those movies. So, you know, there's there's definitely characters. It's it's a little bit irregardless of whether they're male or female. It's just whether you can identify with them or not. And I, I felt like in in the 2016 Ghostbusters, I just I couldn't really identify. I mean, I enjoyed their performance. I thought they did a great job acting in these roles, but I didn't observe as much chemistry as like in the 1984 movie. And of course, the just the whole message of of the little person triumphing over great odds. I felt that was missing in the in the 2016 movie. So, uh, uh, me coming in at it, I, that that would be just my takeaway: is that you know, 1984 Ghostbusters. I I felt like this was really the little person triumphing uh, over government, over you know the ghosts, <laughs> um, the supernatural world, whatever. And and then in the 2016 movie, it was just these these scholarly people that were really intelligent that uh, were taking on the ghosts and getting government grants at the end. So. <laughs> Indeed. So uh, where can we find more of your work, guys? And where can everybody uh, go to check you out and follow you and that sort of thing? Well, we're on, uh, of course, libertopiacartoon.wordpress.com. I know that's a little bit of a mouthful, and, and we're definitely trying to to work on uh, hosting it so that it's no longer a WordPress site. Uh, we, we are uh, figuring out ways to, to maybe make a little bit of money so that we can do that in the future. Uh, we'd like to sell some T-shirts through Libertopia as well uh, sometime down the road. But for now, everything is we've got the cartoons. We've got some educational resources. We've got a lot of artwork, memes, infographics, uh, all that on, on Libertopia cartoon. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook and Google Plus, uh, Twitter and Instagram. Um, Julie has, has a profile on Facebook and then 
I've also got a profile, Lewis Liberman, on, on Facebook as well. Uh, we are a part of the, the Tom Woods group, Tom Woods Elite, uh, which is another great resource for people if, if they haven't checked that out. That's just a, an awesome area with a lot of libertarian and voluntarists interacting and, and having a lot of productive discussion. Um, I do run a community on Facebook called Libertaria or Liber, Libertarian Galactica. <laughs> I think it's Libertopia Galactica. Uh, oh, yeah, Libertopia Galactica. Uh, and that's just another fun place. We've got around 360 people that belong to that community where we, we talk about fun stuff and I'll post things that, that I, I do on Libertopia, uh, the website. So, uh, uh, yeah, we, we've just tried to get out there and, and have fun and, and, uh, share a good positive message with people. So, uh, that, that's, that's where we, where we are. Beautiful. Of course, the, the emphasis of Libertopia cartoon is trying to communicate the message of liberty, mostly through the artistic medium. And so that's why we focus on graphics and memes and infographics. And of course, the flagship cartoon is Libertopia, where it presents our cast of characters in um, the land of Libertopia, which is a completely liberto- libertarian society. And their interactions with the the villains that come in every so often to try to cause problems. And do you have any kind of uh, like a release schedule or you just kind of make them when you make them? Yeah, I make them when I make them. Uh, I try to post something once a week. Uh, of course, I've got a full-time job and so that's, I can sometimes throw a wrench in the work. You know? But oh, yeah. uh, we are going to have another art contest coming up probably around April, May. And uh, this will be the, our third annual art contest. And you can check out some of the previous art contest winners that we've had in the past. But uh, I've also planning some uh, interviews, more interviews with, with people. And that's just a fun way to kind of highlight uh, uh, different people in our community that, that may not, um, you know, they may not have, have a, a podium really to, to stand on and so we we give them an opportunity to to talk a little bit about what they do and, and that's a lot of fun too so uh uh yeah definitely check it out we'd we'd love to have the people come and, and discuss and share ideas and give us ideas on cartoons or or pieces of art or memes or whatever so that sounds if great you, if you want to follow me on facebook the name is julie wilder excellent yeah, I also well, I wanted to mention that. Doesn't. Yeah, I also wanted to mention that uh, you guys are listed uh, in our RSS feed at actualanarchy.com. So when you do post things, they show up on our site as well. Oh, awesome! Yeah, fantastic. All right, Daniel. I think we should wrap this one up. All right, we'll put a uh, we'll tag it and bag it, right? So <laughs> this has been the Actual Anarchy podcast. Movies from a Rothbardian anarcho-capitalist perspective. I want to thank our guests for coming on and talking about two Ghostbusters movies, the original and the uh, SJW one. Uh, we hope you guys enjoyed the show. Do check out uh, actualanarchy.com, readrothbard.com, and libertopiacartoon.wordpress.com. Uh, click on any of the Amazon links. There's a Liberty Classroom link. There's all sorts of ways that you can support us and our guests. And uh, look forward to more stuff from from all of us here uh, in the future. So thanks for joining us, and uh, peace out, homies. Thanks, guys. Take, take care, everybody.
the chipmunks. C-H-I-P-M-U-N-K. We're the chipmunks. Guaranteed to brighten your day. Do, 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 do